that doesn't mean anything, that is not inner, but is just outer. And they say, these people who understand that finally say, you mean it's just sounds, thinking that to, for something to just be a sound is to be useless. Whereas I love sounds just as they are. And I have no need for them to be anything more than what they are. I don't want them to be psychological. I don't want a sound to pretend that it's a bucket or that it's a president or that it's in love with another sound. <laughs> I just want it to be a sound. You're listening to the fine sound of WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Sorry about that. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, we're going to get going with uh, some of your song in, a, in just a moment. Okay. Hello, this is uh, WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and you've got living writers. Um, today we have special guest Dory Shafrir. Um, Dory, hi. Hi. Glad that you can join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so I'm Amanda Yuli. I am the sit-in host for the amazing T. Hetzel, who has a show every week. Um, I'm here for the summer and feel really glad that Dory is joining us uh, for the hour. Um, we're going to get started with some music in just a moment. But first, um, Dory, I want to introduce you to the Living Writers audience. Um, you are author of the novel Startup, and you are also a journalist. Um, can I, I'm going to read a little bit from your, your bio in the back of the book. Um, and then I'd love for you to kind of fill in a little bit more about you. Sure. Okay. Um, Dory Sheffrier is a senior culture writer, and I understand now you're a tech writer at BuzzFeed News. Yeah. She's written for New York, Slate, The All, Rolling Stone, Wired, and other publications. A former resident of Brooklyn, she now lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Matt Mira, a comedy writer and podcaster, and their dog, Bo. Yeah. <laughs> Um, tell me more about your writing career, Dory. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, so I guess I should work, I'll work backwards. Um, I, I am now a tech writer for BuzzFeed, so I'm covering tech and startups in Los Angeles, and I'm also covering issues um, about women and diversity um, in tech in general. Um, and before that, I was writing about culture for BuzzFeed, so kind of broadly defined movies, books, TV, um, trends, stuff like that. 
before that, I was editing at BuzzFeed. Um, and as my bio kind of says, I've had a bunch of jobs um, in media for the last decade or so. Um, kind of going between writing and editing a lot. Um, I, I really enjoy doing both. And sometimes I've had jobs where I do both. And sometimes I've had jobs that are one or the other. Um, right now I'm in an only writing job. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a... Those are the broad strokes. <laughs> it feels so much to me like your journalism career has um, kind of synthesized uh, everything um, into this novel that you've written um, called Startup. So I don't know if you can give us just a short, I don't want to read the, the back of the book, but I'd love for you to give um, our listeners who haven't read it um, just a quick summary of what happened. Sure. So Startup takes place in the tech world of New York City, and it centers around three main characters. One of them um, is a 28-year-old founder of a mindfulness app named Mac McAllister. Another is a 36-year-old woman who works for him named Sabrina Cho Blum. And the third is a 24-year-old woman who works for a tech blog named Katya Pasternak. And Mac gets caught in a sexual harassment scandal at work, and then all of these people's lives kind of get intertwined in various ways. Um, and I feel like that's kind of all I can say say without revealing too much more. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I read it very much. You talked about a couple of the the women in the book. I read it um, as really a feminist book. Um, do you see it that way? You know, it's funny. One of the first reviews of the book, I think it was in Kirkus, called it a feminist satire. And I was, I was like, huh. Did I write a satire? <laughs> oh, but you didn't quibble with the feminist part? You were no, no. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, like, set out to write a feminist book. I set out to write a, a, I think I'm a feminist, so a book I write was probably, a book I was going to write about the tech world was probably going to be inflected with feminism. Right. Um, but... Given the topic that I chose to tackle in fiction, um, yeah, and, and the way, again, without revealing too much, the way that the book ends, I think, is particularly probably um, feels, feels feminist. <laughs> you don't have to say the ending. I'm not, I'm not pressing you here. but. Um... <laughs> But I definitely um, read it that way. And I think, you know, I'm a feminist, too, so maybe when I read books, I think of them as feminist books, you know, <laughs> in the same yeah. way that you're talking about uh, writing them that way. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I personally have a pretty deep fascination with issues of women and working, and some of those are mm -hmm. related to uh, motherhood, and some are related to equity and harassment, and you kind of um, weave all those things together really beautifully. So was that... Um, was that on your mind when you when you set out to write the book to sort of say something there, or did that just emerge in the plot? Um, I would say the thing that was driving me initially was this sexual harassment in tech idea, um, which of course has been very much in the news in the last few months. But when I started the book at the beginning of 2015. Um, there were also a couple of very high-profile sexual harassment cases in tech, and those were kind of at the forefront of my mind. Um, and then, so Sabrina is the only mom in the book, and 
she has two young children, and a lot of her character has to do with, like you said, kind of navigating being a working mom with a partner who is not particularly helpful. Um, and that was something that I wanted, that I definitely wanted to explore as as the book kind of as as I start, as I was working on the book, it became clear that that was a topic that I wanted to explore, um, and Sabrina seemed like a good vehicle for that. Oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that that was handled uh, really beautifully and kind of thank you that. Yeah. Um, so, how have you been reacting? I mean, it sounds like when you started writing the book a couple of years ago this issue was in the news it's obviously in the news now specifically with tech Um, indeed and it's you know it's been bubbling up in the news in different ways I think of Bill O'Reilly and some of the the uh some of the news lately um so do you feel like that has um kind of enhanced the resonance of the book are people saying that to you well people are saying like how did you you know, how did you predict the future? <laughs> like, your book is so timely, all this, all this kind of stuff. And it's interesting because while, you know, while these sexual harassment scandals in tech, I think particularly people are thinking about the um, Uber sexual harassment stuff, um, you know, like, yes, that makes my book more timely, but it's also sort of gross. And, yeah. you know, well, it's like a gross thing to be yeah, excited exactly, about. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I'm not psyched that my <laughs> book has a news peg. Um, right. And, yeah, but it is interesting. Like, I, when I was working on the book, I remember thinking, I hope that this is something that people still care about two years from now when this book comes out. Um, and I think, if anything, people care more now. So, you know, I, I do think it's good that more people are talking about it and raising awareness and more women are speaking out and men are speaking out, too. Um, so I think all of that is good. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you did a great job of... Um of predicting the future, I guess. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what you said. Um, although, what a grim prediction it is, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> the, the women work this way. Um, this is the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, you're listening to uh, Dory Shafrir, who is author of Startup, a novel that came out this year, 2017. We're talking to Dory from. Um, she's in Los Angeles. I'm assuming you're in Los Angeles. I am. Yeah. Okay, I should have <laughs> asked. Um, and we're on the phone. Um, and we are going to hear a song that Dory chose um, before the, the broadcast called, uh, we're going to hear from the Wild Reeds um, in just a moment. And um, actually,
Uh, the Wild Reads with a song that you chose for today. Do you want to tell us something more about why you chose it? Yeah, um, it's a pretty new song, um, but I I kind of immediately took to it uh, as something that I listen to when I'm writing. And so, you know, when you ask me for some songs um, related to writing, I just, I just immediately thought of that one. So that's one that, um, so, so I guess I should ask when you're writing. What does that look like? It sounds like you listen to music. You don't have silence in the background. I don't have silence in the background. Um, I will either play, I have this just like massive songs playlist um, on my Spotify that I will sometimes shuffle. Sometimes I'll listen to the most recent stuff that I put on there. Sometimes I'll listen to one of Spotify's um, like deep focus playlists, um, kind of depending on the mood I'm in. So. And uh, some writers talk about being really bothered by lyrics and by lots of other words in their head. That doesn't that doesn't bother you? You know, it depends. Like there there are some days when I can't listen to to music that has lyrics, and then other days I want to. So um, I, I guess I kind of see both sides. Yeah. 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 Can you tell us more? I think this is like the most common question for every writer, but um, but everybody always wants to know like. What does it look like when you're writing? Are you someone who has the um, certain set, like a desk in a certain place, and it's always 2 p.m., and you always write a thousand words, and you have like a real routine, or do you catch writing moments when they happen? Or um, well, so when I was working on this book, I, I live in Los Angeles, and I'm fortunate enough to have a home office that has like a small couch in it. And so I would usually get up in the morning, make a cup of coffee, go into my office, sit on the couch, put my feet up on, on a little, my little poof, um, <laughs> and rest my laptop on my lap. I mean, I have a desk in my office that I, I sit at probably 10% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was mostly writing in the mornings, at least to get started, and I would usually do um, work from my couch. Um, when I took two months off of work, this was last, like, winter, um, last February and March, 
I would start the day in my office, and then I, I always needed a change of scenery, so I would go to a coffee shop or yeah. somewhere else um, to work, sometimes meet, meeting friends. Um, the nice thing about living in L.A. is that you always have people who have flexible schedules right. <laughs> to come meet you. <laughs> um, so that was nice. You and like a social writer. Not everyone is, but you I, were out in the world. Yes, I am definitely a social writer. And in fact, I, I was just talking about this because, um, you know, I've been a journalist for over 10 years. And obviously when you're a journalist and you are full-time somewhere, you're going into a newsroom and you're surrounded by colleagues. And I think I just kind of, that was how I just always wrote, um, but I but I had this notion in my head that to be a quote unquote real novelist, I would have to like go off to a cabin somewhere and be utterly alone for you know weeks at a time if I really wanted to like you know unleash my creativity or thing. something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. I, so I yeah, so. Um, when was this? This must have been two summers ago. I I had a bunch of vacation days saved up, and I was like, okay, I'm going to take two weeks off and work on this manuscript. I hadn't sold the book yet, but I felt like I really just needed, like, a chunk of time to work on the book. So um, a friend of mine whose family has a house in Santa Fe was like, oh, you can use our house. No one's going to be there. Um, you, you can't can, say no to that. No, I know. And I was like, oh, my gosh, thank you. That's amazing. So I, I actually drove to Santa Fe because getting to Santa Fe is a little complicated. Um, so I just drove. And I was in this, like, lovely house by myself. And after – and I, I was getting work done, but I was extremely lonely. And I was supposed to stay for two weeks. And I wanted to come home after, like, five days. But I forced myself <laughs> to stay stick it out for another few days and then I was just like okay I must leave I yeah yeah and then I tried again I went to Joshua Tree um for like four days by myself and I I again came home early and then I was like okay I this this is not working for me if you're coming home (laughs) early twice then you're not that kind of yes exactly exactly It, it almost sounds like your journalism career trained you for um that kind of that pace of toggling between things um and I mean is that is that how you write now it sounds like you you didn't take much of a break to finish the novel you you kept working most of the time yeah I think that I am someone who does well with short deadlines um so at first the idea of writing a book was very daunting to me because it's obviously a very long-term project so I was able to break it down into you know kind of more more manageable pieces and give myself deadlines, you know, to finish chapters, um, to finish sections. Um, but yeah, I, I think I also just need, like, I can't work for eight hours straight on one thing. I'm just, I, I just don't have the attention span for that. That's the rare writer though, that sits down for eight hours or longer. And I know, but like, but that is, I think that is the uh, impression that people have of a writer, you know, the solitary writer yeah. alone in his or her garret. Yes, <laughs> you know? the wrinkled forehead and yes. the typewriter, yeah. And there, there may be like a quill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I am not that person. Now, that, all that being said, like, 
you know, I'm, I've been a journalist and I, I'm a digital journalist. I've been writing on the internet for a long time. The internet is basically a tool invented to distract you. And so the only way around that for me was to get this app called freedom that disables your internet for a specific period of time. You can set it for anywhere from five minutes to like hours and hours. And Uh so I would set it into chunks of like 30 to 40 minutes and just, work for those that that amount of time yourself do it yeah yeah that's fascinating that your book is essentially about the internet and you had to um self-regulate a little bit oh yeah for sure (laughs) i think a lot of people do that um so speaking of we were talking about the news um earlier when we talked about the um the tech harassment news which has been so prevalent lately yeah Um, there's some news today yesterday and today about um some emails coming out, right? Um, which mm-hmm. made me think about this conversation we were going to have. Um, I think what I saw in the Times this morning was uh, something, uh, I'll get the headline wrong, but it was like the end of email. Um, and it basically was saying like, this is it. Like we've had our 20 years with email and now we realize that it's just completely incriminating and people are misusing it and uh, putting all kinds of things that, that they ought not in uh, such Mm -hmm. a permanent record, Uh, Mm -hmm. which made me think of your book. And again, I won't give away any, any plot points, but um, (laughs) I would love your take on uh, some of the news of today. It's July 12, 2017, we should say, which we always say on this broadcast. Um, but yeah, do you want to speak to that a little bit about how we use um, not just email, but other forms of digital communication? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's easy to forget that all of this stuff is permanent, um, especially when it seems very casual. Like, as, as much as email seems casual, like text, or texting or Instagram messages or, you know, stuff like that seems, it seems ephemeral, but it's really not. Like, you're, you have the record of that is, is you know, it's permanent. Um, right. Even in the apps that assure you that they're momentary or, right, that they're, uh, they're fleeting. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And you get sort of lulled into this complacency. Um, I know I do. Um yeah where now, you know, I'm mindful now. It's like now I'm mindful of it, but my behavior hasn't changed that much. And I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes if I'm like texting, if I'm gossiping with a friend about someone over text or something, I always think about when um, Harriet the Spy's notebook gets discovered (laughs) (laughs) and all her friends get, you know, all her friends turn on her and rightfully because she's been spying on them writing everything down in her notebook and I just think like oh god that would be so embarrassing but I'm just going to send this text anyway (laughs) and you know I I think a lot of people feel that way um or behave that way we all know right yeah we all know that it's there at this point right at this point we all know there's no illusion of secrecy or you know permanent deletion um we use slack the which is a Mm -hmm chat client um a lot at work and you can set private messages to to automatically delete in a certain number of days and slack you know there's this message that comes up and it says if you do this that these messages will be permanently deleted they will not be recoverable etc etc and i always think like 
I bet they would be. <laughs> like, you know, like if, yeah. if they had to be, they probably would be. Someone um, could do it. Yeah. Someone could do it. Someone could find them. So, yeah. So I just think we, we have sort of accepted this trade-off for the convenience of being able to be connected to people in the ways that we are. And the trade-off is, you know, sometimes our, our private lives might be revealed. Yes. As <laughs> happens in Startup. Um, your yeah. novel is Startup. Um, and this, we're talking to Dory Shafrir um, on Living Writers, WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Um, and we're talking about the kind of um, accidental um, release of private information digitally, which is in the news right now and which is in the novel as well. How did we, how did we get lulled into this suspension of, uh, of, of disbelief about um, the privacy of those messages? Because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you and I wanted to have a private conversation, we, we would do it in person or maybe on a landline phone call. Um, but, you know, there was no, no option for that. Um, how did we lose that? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think I think a lot of it is the convenience um, of just being able to send a quick text or send an Instagram message or, you know, it's just easier. People don't want the hassle of having to actually meet in person or pick up the phone. That just seems, you know, too cumbersome. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, I think that... That's just been a hallmark of digital communication for a really long time. I mean, mm -hmm. 20, 30 years ago, we still, definitely 20 years ago and probably like 25 years ago, um, like AOL chat rooms existed. Like that was anonymous, but it was still, it was, it was allowing people to say things that they wouldn't normally say. Yeah. Um, and so that, I don't know, I think it's just kind of like always always been something that seemed more private than it actually is right well it's this veil of anonymity you feel like you're you're anyone or you can be anyone else uh behind the screen um exactly phone. yeah um and i think we've all gotten addicted to the convenience of not having to wait for the other person to be available uh -huh. you can just send it yeah. out there and then it's there when they're ready um but that is so dangerous as we as we know um, so I think I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to play another song um, in, a, in a few seconds here. Um, you have to explain why you chose this Carly Rae Jepsen song before we play it. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll play it. Sound good? Great. Yeah. Tell us more. Tell us about that. Um, so I love Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, I think she writes perfect pop music. And it seems like every summer she comes out with a song that to me is just the perfect summer song and um, I thought that her song that she came out with a, m a month or two ago cut to the ceiling um, is just it's like it, it is it is the, the perfect summer anthem um, and I've been listening to it a lot like in the car um, and you know maybe it's because I live in Southern California now that I you know I, I want a song that I can like blast in my car you know, when it's you know, 80 degrees and sunny out and I'm driving on the freeway or something, but, um, it definitely, it never fails to cheer me up. It's, it's a, it's a great pick me up. All right. Let's have a pick me up. Um, here is Cut to the Feeling with Carly Rae Jepsen and we'll be back with Dory Shafrir in just a moment. I 
back with Living Writers. This is Amanda Yuli sitting in for T. Hetzel on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Our guest this afternoon is Dori Schaffrier, who's author of Startup. And um, Dori's talking to us from Los Angeles today. Hi, Dori. Hello. Hello. Um, I was hoping that you could read a little passage of Startup for our listeners, um, and then we can talk a little bit more about the book. Sure. That? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the part I'm going to read is from the prologue, so you don't really need to know anything about the plot or, the, or anything else about my Perfect book to, to yes. understand what I'm about to read. Okay. They came from all over the city in the pre-dawn hours, a merry band of highly optimized minstrels in purple leggings and shiny headbands and brightly colored sneakers, walking the 15 minutes from the L train or directing an Uber to the former spice factory in the no man's land between Williamsburg and Greenpoint. The neighborhood's normal early morning crowd, the dog walkers, the construction workers, the marathon trainers, mostly looked upon them with amused curiosity. Nothing fazed them anymore. Once they got into the club, they either headed straight for the dance floor or descended on the bar, which this morning was not selling alcohol, but rather providing free sustenance in the form of granola bars and coconut water and green juice, all sponsored by an on-demand laundry app, which they drank greedily before or in some cases while slithering onto the dance floor. This was the October edition of Morning Rave, a monthly gathering devoted to the idea that the best way to start the day was with the excited energy of a clean living dance party. It was a movement that in a previous generation might have been derided as corny or Mormon, but this was a different New York. The cynical echo of Generation X had finally been quieted, and along with it, 
Most of the dive bars rent stabilized apartments, bands, underground clubs, clothing boutiques, and fashion magazines that used to define the city. In its place had arisen a promised land of Dwayne Reeds and Chase ATMs on every corner, luxury doorman buildings, Pilates studios and spin classes, $18 rosemary-infused cocktails, and $7 cups of single-origin coffee, all of which were there to cater to a new generation of 20-somethings, the data scientists and brand strategists, software engineers and social media managers, product leads and marketing associates, and IT coordinators ready to disrupt the world with apps. And today, like every day, they would work until it was dark again, and then they would go to dinner parties or secret cocktail bars or rooftop events. Most of them would end the night watching Netflix on their laptops in bed, perhaps in one of the new high-rises summoned directly from a marketing brochure. Doorman, swimming pool, rooftop cabanas, yoga room, unparalleled views, and the lifestyle you deserve. Few of them lived alone, but most of them rarely crossed paths with their roommates. Everyone was just so busy. Wherever they resided, Williamsburg, Bushwick, the Lower East Side, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, they embraced their neighborhood's ready availability of acai bowls and yoga studios. They were all in agreement that adulthood could and should be fun. It was truly a new gilded age. Thank you, Dori. Yeah, thank um, you. you. You know my first question has to be whether you've attended a morning rave, either in Brooklyn or in L.A. Um, I have. Oh. A, it's a party called Daybreaker um, that this is kind of loosely based on. And um, they have I, – I went to one in uh, Manhattan um, last year, and they have them in L.A. and other, some other cities, too. Yes, I've definitely um, heard about them, but I feel I'm too old to attend them. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm definitely too old to attend them, but <laughs> I felt I needed to go in the name of research. <laughs> you did such a great job of of describing it to someone who is too old to go to one and probably won't. So um, oh, I, I felt very, I, I felt I understood um, what the what the event was. Um, so you know, in reading this book, um, I have to say every character feels kind of um delightfully flawed and um mm-hmm. and heroic and so i'm wondering about your take on um on the protagonist of the book like who um who is taking the emotional journey that uh, that really takes the lead for you um i think sabrina probably has the most profound emotional journey um and she's do you want to explain just who she is in the book again yeah so she is the mom um who is 36 who works at this company where she's the oldest employee uh, by you know by several years she's the only mom her boss is 26 um and she's married to uh, a guy who is katya pasternak who is a journalist Uh, she's married to her boss so everyone is kind of like incestuously yeah. related, <laughs> um, which, you know, I amped up a little bit, but is also like pretty true to life, at least in my experience in mm-hmm. working in media in New York City. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I think she she starts the book feeling like pretty sorry for herself and where she is in her life and through a series of events that occur I think she learns that you know she can she can have more of an impact on people's lives than she thought yeah yeah I I think that's fair to say (laughs) I I think so too I think um 
you do a, a very nuanced job of making the point that people who are 36 or 45 are using the internet um, differently and are working differently than younger uh, mm-hmm. professionals um, in the field. And I'm sure you see that in your work. Um, but other than that point, I wonder if you think, and if you could speak to the idea that men and women use the internet differently. Um, Cause I, I saw some real differences in that when I was reading it. Do you think that's true? Oh, interesting. Um, I, Maybe you I don't. don't. No. I, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, there must be some differences. Um, but to me, the more pronounced differences are generational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you as well. Do you feel like, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, but do you feel like the process of writing this book has changed how you use the Internet? Huh. Has changed how I use the Internet? No, I don't think so. Um, but no. you've illuminated how it's used, right? So it's sort of, um, even if you're not using it differently. Well, I had used Freedom before I started working uh-huh. on the book. Uh-huh. So that wasn't yeah. that wasn't a book concession. That was a, <laughs> <laughs> that was a you know, my slight ADD <laughs> concession. <laughs> Um, but I guess, I mean, the question is more, are you using fewer apps to share information? Are you sharing less? Are you sharing more? Do you feel like it's futile and doesn't matter and everything's out there anyway, so you can use all the apps and say everything and it doesn't matter? Or are you more circumspect? Um, or has it not changed you? Maybe it hasn't. Um, well, I mean, the the thing about asking that question now is that I've been promoting a book for the last three months um so that requires you to be very active on social media so even though I was pretty active before I have had to be even more active yeah (laughs) (laughs) because it's a tool like it's it's essential you can't you can't opt out um even if it's even if it feels dangerous or or whatever as we were talking about before yeah Exactly. Um, so in addition to all of these kind of themes about um, gender and generation, as you just pointed out, um, I think this, the setting for the book is really appealing in that it's the, the tech world um, and really um, it's, a, I think, a different angle on it than most readers are used to because I think we're all extremely familiar with the Silicon Valley um, culture and even the stereotypes of what's happening there, but this is really the New York tech scene and media mm-hmm. scene. Um, can you tell us why, like, why is that an interesting setting for the book and um, how does that, how did that draw you in? How does that draw you in? Yeah, so, you know, I think rightfully so, Silicon Valley and the Bay Area have been the settings for most of the writing and TV shows and movies about the tech and startup world because that is where, you know, kind of the, that is ground zero for all of this stuff. Um, but what I thought was really interesting about New York, and I lived in New York until I moved to L.A. about four years ago, um, is the way that tech has really grown in New York City. And also I was really interested in the way that the tech industry um kind of has made its way into the broader ecosystem of New York City, which has these very powerful, entrenched kind of legacy industries like 
finance and media right. and fashion um, and how do these how does this startup culture uh, you know get power and influence in New York was a question that I was always interested in and so I really liked being able to set the book in New York because it allowed me to write about New York as a character. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I find that to be endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was um, it was great because it kind of took a little bit of a left turn from what one might expect from a, a book about startup culture. So well, thank um, you. And I learned um, I learned a lot. Um, so, Dora, you are a journalist. We've talked about this a lot this hour. Um, and I'm so intrigued by the fact that for your first book you didn't do like long-form reporting or nonfiction. you went to fiction and you went to a novel mm-hmm. um i i'd love to know more about um how that came to be is this something where you always wanted to write a novel and you ha- sort of had one in your head for for years and years or did it just come to you yeah so i uh i ha- i did not have this in my head for years and years i never thought i would write a novel i have always been um, pretty adamant about the fact that I don't write fiction. Um, I took one fiction writing class in college, towards the end of college, and didn't really, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't get that much out of it. Um, and that was, that was kind of my last attempt to even try to write fiction. Um, but when I started working on this book, I, I'd been at BuzzFeed at that point for about three years, and I wasn't writing at the time. I was managing, um, and I was editing, and so I, I really missed writing, but I didn't, my job did not allow me the time or the kind of the mental space to write. Um, I, I was only able to write very infrequently. And so I decided that I wanted to have my own project that would be separate from BuzzFeed um, and totally unrelated to anything I was doing at BuzzFeed. So I decided the best way to do this would be to write every day for 30 days. Um, And it just so happened to coincide with the end of 2014. So I was like, oh, great. This is a perfect New Year's resolution. I can just write every day for the month of January. and I, I, I am more of a morning person than a night person. I say more of a morning person because I need a lot of sleep. So it's not like I can, you know, just wake up at 4 a.m. if I go to bed at midnight. Um, yeah, that sounds but, unpleasant. That doesn't yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I started, you know, I started waking up a little earlier and I would go into my office and, you know, like I said, sit on the couch and um, I would write. I told myself I had to write for at least half an hour. Um, but I would give myself an hour usually every day mm-hmm. and I did it. I did it for a month. And so what I did during that month was I just started, I, I was basically just free writing and I just started coming up with this story about the tech scene in New York, um, that was a sort of sideways way into what I eventually ended up writing. Um, and so at the end of the month I had about... 60 pages, and I showed them to a friend, an, another writer um, here in Los Angeles, and she read them, and she was like, you should keep going with this. I really like it. Um, and then that gave me the confidence to show them to my, show the pages to my agent, 
Um, and she was like, you should keep going with this. I really like it. Um, There's nothing so, like a little encouragement, right? Mm-hmm. When, you, when you get started, that's great. So, so then? So then, yeah. So then I, I just kept, I, I kept working on it, but you know, I, I was, I was definitely going in pretty blind. Like I, you know, I never really took writing workshops or, um, you know, tried to learn how to write fiction. I, I read a lot and I had read a lot, you know, at that time, but, um, You're not a trained fiction writer. I'm not a trained fiction writer. Um, and you don't have an so MFA. I do not have an MFA. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of had to teach myself some of the things and a lot of it was trial and error. Like I, you know, I have probably 40 or 50,000 words of the book that I didn't use. Um, because they just ended up not being part of the story. Um, and, you know, who knows? I, even if I'd been trained in fiction, I, I might have, that might have happened anyway. Um, yeah, but, so it's how you've gotten to yeah. know who these people are and what the exactly. situations are. Yeah, exactly. that's always valuable. Yeah. Um, so you're not trained as a, as a fiction writer. You are trained as a journalist, and, a, and you're an experienced journalist. Um, but I thought there was kind of another form of writing that... Um, that was emerging for me and that is a screenplay like I, I really felt like there were some cinematic components oh, peaks and well, valleys and things can you do you feel like any part of that was intentional um yes because I used a screenplay beat sheet to help me with the plot um, <laughs> so, so yes it was very uh-huh. intentional um I got to a point, and now having talked to other fiction writers, I know that this is pretty common, but I was really having trouble with, like, the middle third of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew how the plot began, and I knew how the plot, how things kind of, I had, a, I had a pretty good idea about how things wrapped up, but I was like, how do we get from here to there? <laughs> the path? Yeah. yeah, like, what happens? How do these characters evolve? Um, and I was really struggling with it. And a friend of mine suggested that I look at some um, screenplay guidelines. And because screenplays are obviously all plot and dialogue. And, you know, you have to be really good at story um, to write a screenplay. And so I then went back and sort of uh, imposed the screenplay beat sheet um, onto my what I had already done and was like, oh, I see. This has to happen here. And, you know, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And so yeah. it was interesting. It was an interesting exercise because um, it showed me, it, it gave me some, some guideposts in terms of plot. And, you know, because I did, I'm not, I'm not a super literary writer. Like I said, I don't have an MFA, and that's just not the kind of writing I think I would be able to do. And I knew I wanted to write something that was more plot-driven, that you know felt like a page-turner, even if it wasn't a thriller or a mystery. Um, and so I knew that I was going to have to kind of get the plot to be really tight, and so that really helped me. Yeah, and I think that... Um 
having a mix of the sort of, it sounds like there's a lot of organic kind of writing at what you felt and when you were able and doing that stuff. And then it's kind of comforting to impose a little structure on that Mm -hmm. um, as a writer to just sort of see like the shape that it takes. Um, And you certainly did that with kind of a, there's that narrative pull all along where you, um, you want to know what happens to Sabrina and to everyone else. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, well done. I think uh, we're going to do one more song. Maybe you can tell us uh, why we're hearing an Usher song. Think of song. Next. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell us more. Well, I, 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 like many people, I really enjoyed Hamilton, um, and I really liked the soundtrack. But um, I think I might even like the the Hamilton mixtape even more. Um, and Usher's rendition of "Wait for It" is one of my favorite songs on on the mixtape. So. Um, and is that a writing song for you? Or is that just a feeling good hanging out song? Yeah, that's kind of a feeling good hanging out song. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Well, here's Usher. And we'll be back with Dory Shafrir in just a moment. protect It's the Living Writers Show with uh, Amanda Yuli as your host for the summer, filling in for the wonderful T. Hetzel. Um, and our guest today is Dori Shafrir. She's author of the novel Startup. She's also a journalist with BuzzFeed, and we've been talking about her novel and her career and how she writes and women and the Internet and, um, I don't know, everything else for the last <laughs> hour or so. Um, thanks for joining us uh, via phone from L.A., Dori. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is like this is my favorite question to ask basically anyone I meet, but it's a high high priority for writers uh, that I talk to. Uh, what are you reading right now? 
and and how are you reading like are you um dug into the newspaper are you only reading online do you have a novel going by your bedside or um well yeah (laughs) all of that right uh yeah i i I read, I've been on a, I've been on a Kindle kick lately, um, I think because I'm just like addicted to the, the speed of being able to access the books. I mean, I still read a lot in, um, hardcover. I'm a, I'm a book of the month club member and I, I get new hardcovers every you month. You are? I am. From a certain I love, publisher or I, I'm um, not No, it's familiar. book of the month club is, um, its own Thing. And they they actually selected startup as an as an April pick, but I'd been a member prior to that. So that's <laughs> a good story. That has to um, feel amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. When I when they called me to say that it had been chosen, I was like, oh my god, that's awesome. Um, and they have really good taste. My friend Maris Kreisman um, is the editorial director over there, and I just love it. Um, so I know that I'm getting a new hardcover, at least one new hardcover every month from them. Um, and then lately I've also been reading um, the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy. Um, I read the first two books. I'm about mm-hmm. to start the third one. Um, I just started uh, Samantha Irby's collection of essays, We Were Never Meeting in Real Life. Um I just read Black Edge, which is a book by Sheila Kolhatkar, who is a reporter for Business Week, um, and it's about hedge funds and all the dirty things that they do. <laughs> um, is it nonfiction? Is that it is not that is nonfiction? Uh-huh. And then um, I've also been I, I I read a lot of mysteries and thrillers because I, I do feel like they help me um, with plot. Mm-hmm. And so I just read The Magpie Murders, um, which is Anthony Horowitz's new book, and uh, The Woman in Cabin 10 I just read as well. That's a great range. And then do you also kind of keep up, like, do you do a lot of reading on the Internet of, uh, you know, news and things like that? Or how do you, how do you take yeah. news? Um, I, I get a lot of my news through Twitter. Um, you know, by the time I get up, in LA, I get up at seven, so not super early, but not like late, but that's already 10 a.m. on the East things Coast. Things have so happened here. Things yes. have happened. Like there's already, we've already gone through like three news cycles by the time yeah. I get up. Um, so I feel like I always have, I'm like half awake and I'm like looking at Twitter and just some sort of like, what? And I wake up to NPR, so okay. um, I always, you know, KCRW, I, I have that on when I, when I wake up. Um, which is, you know, the great station out here in L.A., um, one of the great stations out here. And, um, yeah, and then so I usually there, – there are very few sites that I just go to to see what is happening. Um, usually I'll look at the New York Times and, you know, kind of see what is going on on there. And then I click on links on Twitter. Um, there's always – something going on in our work slack like people put links in there all the time um and i will usually click on those um so yeah the buzzfeed news app is always very uh-huh. okay. very helpful nice, nice um, plug yeah yeah <laughs> so so the yeah. reciprocal question to like what you are reading and kind of digesting as a reader is what are you writing i mean i, I know that you're writing um you're in the tech beat now for buzzfeed news yeah um, are you writing any fiction now or are you working on another book yeah, I'm. I have an idea for another book um, that 
is more of a thriller slash mystery. Um, I, I don't. You I don't want to, to say too you much about to, it, to say. Um, but I've been sort of I've been I've been working on that on and off for the last few months, and I hope to be able to have a chunk of time to work on it a little bit more this summer. So this is your second book. Are you approaching that second uh, book project any differently than you did the first one? I mean, the first one it sounds like you had this very purposeful kind of at least half an hour a day, and you had this month. Um, it sounds like you've learned and grown and done new things. Are you structuring it? So I haven't been structuring it so far, and I I was actually thinking about this the other day. I think, you know, that I I feel like the last few months have been so busy with my with book stuff that I haven't. I I felt like giving myself that kind of structure was not going to work because I was just traveling too much and right just sort of consumed with other things. Um, but I think, yeah, I think probably in the next couple of months, once my life sort of gets back to normal, <laughs> I will I will do that. Now, the, the, the major difference between doing that then and doing it now is that we have a dog now um, who requires a lot of attention in the mornings. So, oh, no. Um, well, so it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting. Um, I, I, I've been thinking about this. I'm like, well, I'll probably have to get up even earlier and then I'll walk <laughs> him and then, you know, because you can't, you can't sit down to work and expect him to be okay with just hanging out while you work. Sometimes he's okay with that and then other times he's like, no, we, we need to go out right, right. now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So you got to work around a new, yeah. new life circumstance. Exactly. Um, My last question for you um, is one close to my heart. I'm such a fan of young writers and aspiring writers and new writers. Um, Do you have advice um, for either young people just starting in writing or um, not so young people? Yes, Um, and it does kind of have to do with uh, the way I started my book, which is that there's no unit of time in the day that is too small to write. Um, You know, you hear a lot of people saying that they don't have time to work on their other projects. And to that, I say, uh, you you know, you don't need the the chunk of eight hours or four hours. Even if you have 15 minutes or half an hour a day, that eventually adds up. If you write a page a day in three months, you'll have 100 pages. So... You know, I think people need to look at it as, as kind of a long game and to, to be able to take those little little snippets of time, um, I think, are just really important. I love that advice. And I love the kind of low bar that you've set for like 30 minutes a day like that. And most people can find that if they, totally. they want to do it. And it just totally. feels very feasible and yeah. um, very easy. Yeah. Um, if you want to do it, I think it's about training your brain, right, to get yeah. into that. Like, say, these are the thirty minutes that um, yeah. that are mine and for my writing. Yeah, yeah, that's tough to do, but you have done it. Um, Dory Shafrir is here with us, wrapping up the hour of Living Writers. Her novel is Startup, Publishers Little Brown. Um, we are excited to hear more from Dory soon. Uh, we're going to close out the hour um, with a song by Brandy Carlisle, "The Eye." Um, but first, I want to say, Dory, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It was a pleasure. Um, All right. Until next time, here's Brandi Carlisle. It really breaks my heart to see a dear old friend go down to the war now. 
face again Do you know the sound Of a closing door Have you heard that sound somewhere before Do you wonder if she knows you anymore I wrapped your love around me like a chain But I never was afraid that it would die You can dance in a hurricane But only if you're standing in the eye Where did you learn to walk? Where did you learn to run? Away from everything Saludos, we are Rosy and Brian Amador from Sol y Canto. Estás sintonizado al 88.3 WCBN-FM en Ann Arbor. You're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3. Saludos y bienvenidos a la media hora norteña. Amén. 